Let us remain standing as we ask God to bless our time of study. Father in heaven, one thing we have asked of you, and that we will continue to seek after, that we may dwell in your house all the days of our life, to gaze upon your beauty, and to inquire in your temple. Hear us, O Lord, as we call to you. Be gracious to us and answer us, for you have said, Seek my face, and our hearts say to you now, Your face, Lord, do we seek. Please do not hide your face from us, but reveal it to us in the face of Christ Jesus our Lord. Teach us your way, O Lord, and lead us now on a level path. For we ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. We may now be seated. Our scripture reading for this evening um, is from Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, has 12 verses. So, people of God, hear now God's holy word. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Earlier this month in the afternoon service when I preached here, uh, we were introduced to the first psalm, uh, Psalm chapter 1, and that psalm answered a very important question, if you remember, right? What what does it mean to be blessed? What does it mean to be truly happy? Most people today think that true happiness is whatever makes me feel happy. My life and my future depend upon what I think and what I feel is right, but not, you know, some objective moral truth that should have authority over my life, right? To tell me what I should believe or how I should live. But beloved, Psalm 1 warned us about the way of the ungodly that leads to eternal judgment. Yet at the same time, assuring us of a life of eternal blessing seen in the picture of the ideal blessed man. And I like how my seminary professor simply put it, 
that the ideal man in Psalm 1 is the one who listens to the Word of God, lives the Word of God, and loves the Word of God. And yet the truth is, a person is ultimately blessed and is capable, is capable of living the righteous way by first coming to realize that in our own strength, we cannot measure up to God's standard and that we desperately need a Savior. We need a physician, the one who has the only cure for the sickness of our souls, and that He's powerful enough to remove our guilt and our shame and grant us His righteousness. And how is that possible? Well, it's possible because Christ is the fulfillment of the truly blessed man in Psalm 1. He, He fulfilled the Word of God because all of us who were in Adam were dead in our sins. And that's why Jesus, as the second Adam, never walked in the counsel of the wicked. He never stood in the way of sinners, but by His perfect obedience earned for us what? Eternal life. Eternal life by His perfect obedience so that we who were dead in our sins are made alive in Christ Jesus. We are renewed in the heart and the mind so that by trusting in in Him alone, we can receive a life of true blessedness. And so here in Psalm chapter 2, it gets even better because it's connected to Psalm 1. And and Psalm 2 continues to reveal to us a a fuller aspect of the Savior, which was already introduced to us in Psalm 1. Because not only are we to think about the truly blessed man, which Christ fulfilled in Psalm 1, but now here in Psalm 2, the truly blessed man has been anointed to be king. The king anointed by God to have authority over all nations, over all rulers in every age. If Psalm 1 showed us the truly blessed man or the truly blessed life at the micro level, you know, Psalm 2 will show us the blessed life at the macro level. And so that will be under the reign of the king. Psalm 2 is described by one scholar as the big picture of salvation and of world history, right? It's the picture of the cosmic drama of redemption. And so the main truth of Psalm chapter 2 can be summarized in this way. Since the Lord decreed that Christ is the anointed king and that he must eternally reign over all things, then you and I must submit to his authority and live under his care. Let me repeat that, that since the Lord decreed that Christ is the anointed king and that he must eternally reign over all things, then you and I must submit under his authority and live under his care. But beloved, what if we don't submit to his authority? What if we don't see him worthy of our allegiance? Well, as we'll see, there's also warnings in our passage especially for the nations and the earthly rulers who conspire against the king, we see that for them it doesn't end well. They who try to go against the anointed king. And so how can we think about this king? And and why is it crucial to heed his warning and to be wise to submit to his kingship? These are important questions that we don't often think about, but we should. We should. Because at the end of the day, your soul depends on what you do with the king. 
the king which God has appointed and the king who has revealed himself. Well, there are three truths that we can think about in our passage, three truths to help us answer these questions. And first, we'll see in our passage the rejection against the king, second, the reign of the king, and finally, the response to the king. The rejection against the king, the reign of the king, and finally, the response to the king. And first, we see the rejection against the king. And we see that there in verses 1 to 3. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Now, who is speaking here? Now, we, we don't know right away. You know, typically, a psalm would have an inscription of the author or the occasion of when the psalm was written, which we don't have here. However, we can be confident that it was King David who wrote it. Because in the New Testament, Acts chapter 4, verses 20 to 31, the apostle Peter and John attributed it to David as the author. And just by the language of Psalm 2, it has allusions of the Davidic promise, that Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7, just pulsating through the veins of the psalm, where the Lord establishes His anointed king over Israel. And so it's likely that Psalm 2 was written in the context of Israel's monarchy. God's people in Israel's history were given a land and needed to live before a holy God as a holy nation. And they were to be a beacon of hope to the pagan nations, right? To the pagan rulers around them. And so not only did the Lord appoint prophets and priests, but He also appoints His own king, a ruler for His people. A, a, a king who would rule in true justice and true righteousness according to the Torah, according to God's laws, and according to His promises. And why? So that His people would ultimately reflect the virtues of the king. But who would that king be? Who would that anointed king be after God's own heart? It's the king from David's royal line that the righteous king would reign upon the eternal throne that God has established forever. This is why scholars identify Psalm 2 as a royal psalm, right? It's rooted in God's covenant promise to, to King David back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 to 13. It's there that God promised to David. He says there, your throne shall be established forever, and, and I will establish the kingdom of your offspring who comes after you. See that? And this pronouncement should be an occasion for rejoicing among the nations, right? That a king would come and finally make all things right. To be the hope that you and I need, to be that hope that the whole world needs. And that this is not just any news, but it's good news. It's good news. And yet, what do we see here in verse 1 of our passage? we see that not everyone finds this to be good news, right? Instead of rejoicing, what do we see? We see quite the opposite. We see hostility. We see the nations, the peoples, the kings of the earth, and the rulers, they all conspire together against the Lord and against His anointed. And what's revealed concerning their hearts? Well, we see there it's what? Full of rage. It's full of anger. 
we see revealed about their minds that their minds are darkened. And why? Why is that? Because we read that they plot and conspire against the Lord. And it's fascinating that the verb to plot in Hebrew could also mean to meditate, right? To audibly murmur, right? They, they meditate and talk about their plots of rebellion. And why? Because the ungodly, instead of meditating on the law of the Lord, right? The way God intended the mind to be used, like in Psalm chapter 1, what do they do? They meditate on plotting against God and His anointed. And it's interesting how the ungodly, you know, the ungodly can come from all different walks of life and can disagree about a lot of things, but then really, you know, come to an agreement in their hearts and say that the Lord and His anointed must not have authority over us. That's what they agree upon, right? It's a, it's a shared rebellion. And what about the kings and the rulers of the earth? Well, this strikes a chord in them, doesn't it? Because there's a tendency for ungodly rulers, even in the the highest courts of society today, to be hostile against a more powerful king. And why? They they feel threatened. That someone more powerful can, can speak with such authority, can control them with their power and influence. And so what else are all these ungodly people saying, especially against the Lord and His anointed? In verse 3, they declare, let us burst their bonds apart and let us cast their cords from us. In other words, you know, let's break free. Let's break free from the Lord's restraint. Let us break from His rule. And the reason is because that's the rebellious nature of the heart, isn't it? That's the rebellious nature of the heart. That's the sinful nature of the mind and will to pursue sin. It's like saying, you know, I don't need restraint, right? I'm I'm king over my life. And I have absolute authority to make my own decisions, to govern my own life the way I think is right. But you see, beloved, it's self-defeating if you think that way. It's self-defeating. And why? Because the desire to be free from God is, is not true freedom, but what? It's further enslavement to sin. It's further enslavement to sin. And, I, and I, I like as one Reformed commentator writes, he says, true freedom is not about being free from restraint, but being set free for living rightly. Right? In other words, to be truly free is to be set free from the bondage of sin, and to live according to what's right in the eyes of God. And really, that statement today goes against the culture's, you know, idea of moral freedom. You know, because yes, we we have many laws in our country. Yes, we have many policies in the civil realm. But the question for us is, how are we thinking, you know, as Christians about God's moral standard, which is the standard above all, all other standards of living, especially as we meditate upon what God expects of us and how we must think and how we must live in the Christian life. Just because it's culturally acceptable to, you know, compromise God's Word on different issues, I don't know, what is the hot topic issues? Abortion, you know, gender confusion, biblical marriage, 
sex, how we use our resources, right? But yet it doesn't mean that it changes the king's moral standard for all people. It doesn't matter if it's the majority view or even if those in authority advocate against God's word, against God's standard. And why? Because God's standard never changes. God's standard never changes. And so, beloved, it's a warning for all of us, isn't it? Right? That if you think freedom is being free from the Lord's rule, governed by His word, and you say, you know, I, I, don't, I don't need to be ruled by His standards, then you, you, know, you realize that all your efforts to keep God and His word out of your life are what? They're all in vain. Just like when David asked in verse 1, the nations and the peoples plot in what? They plot in vain. Because who do you think you're dealing with? Who do you think you're dealing with? Right? You're not dealing with someone who is a creature like you. Right? You're dealing with the creator, the creator, the, the God of the universe. Because no matter how passionate, no matter how determined you are to go against God, even if you band together against him, the Lord looks at the rebels in verse 4 and what? He laughs. You see that? He laughs. He laughs at their vain efforts from heaven and he holds them in derision, in which to him is mockery. It's ridiculous. It's absurd. I remember, you know, when I was in seminary, when I was a seminary student, I, I took some boxing classes right, uh, twice a week. That's probably towards the end. And, and, you know, in three weeks in, I can see some results. You know, I can see that I lost a little bit of weight and build some stamina. And, and I'm just thinking as I'm reading this, what if one day, you know, hypothetically, after just three weeks of training, you know, and just, you know, just knowing all the basics, you know, and I was just crazy to tell my trainer, you know, if I, if I ask him, you know, hey, Eddie, you know, Eddie's his name actually. Um, you know, I think I'm ready. Ready for what? I think I'm ready to go 12 rounds in the ring with Mike Tyson. How do you think he would respond, right? <laughs> it's ridiculous. My, my trainer would have laughed, you know. He would have said, you know, I, I appreciate your determination, but to be honest, you wouldn't last in the ring three seconds with Mike Tyson, you know. And how ridiculous would that be, ridiculous, you know, would, would that be for me to go against a heavyweight boxing champion like Mike Tyson? And so you see, beloved, how ridiculous, right? How absurd, how pathetic it would be to go toe-to-toe with the God of the universe in whom your very breath depends upon. And you know, the only wise thing to do, beloved, the only thing to do is surrender. Because you would be making a fool of yourself to go against a heavyweight champion in which God has the last laugh. And so not only do we see the rejection against the king, but now we're introduced to see the reign of the king from verses 5 to 9. And so after allowing... They are the rebellious nations, the peoples, the kings, and rulers of the earth to speak their folly. It's now the Lord's turn to speak. You know, it's my turn to speak. 
We see in verse 5 that David tells us, then the Lord will speak to them in his wrath. See that? Really, all it takes is the Lord to open his mouth and, and to just speak. And what does it do? It sends terror to their souls. If before the rebels weren't paying attention, this time the Lord has caught their attention. In verse 6, we, we, we hear what the Lord declares, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Right? Notice. Notice that it's an irreversible declaration by the Lord to install his king. And the king is none other than the anointed one. The anointed one that we already saw in verse 2. You know, and, and the place that the king is installed upon is where? It's on Mount Zion, which is described as the Lord's holy hill. It, it's really, it's that hill in Jerusalem where the city of David is resting upon. It's the place where the temple once stood. It's the place where people were to worship the Lord. So, beloved, this is a pivotal moment in redemptive history because something permanent is being established. The, the establishment of the king whose kingdom cannot be shaken. And in verse 7, David reveals the royal decree so that the anointed king from David's line, from the tribe of Judah, would come to fulfill the throne. And he would say, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. You know, it's the same echo of that Davidic promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7 where Yahweh declares, I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. Notice that the king's installment isn't merely a formal transaction. It isn't merely a job to fulfill. But with his installment comes with it that intimate relationship between the Lord and heaven and his anointed king. It's between a father and his son. Father and his son, who the son would execute his rule on earth. And so what's the assurance that the anointed king, that the anointed son is trustworthy? You know, how, how do we know that his kingdom will not be shaken? Well, well, the son is on the Lord's side, right? And guess what? If you're on the Lord's side, nothing can fail. If you're on the Lord's side, nothing can fail, beloved. And so the anointed son speaks again and reveals the Lord's promise to him in verse 8. The Lord said to me, asked me, your father, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You know, notice how the son has intimate access to the father through prayer. That he can ask the father, please grant your will for me. And what does the Father grant? Well, we see that the Father will make the nations the king's heritage, and he makes the ends of the earth his what? His possession, right? But think about it. Earlier we saw in verses 1 to 3, the very same nations rebelling against God. The very nations who were filled with rage, who were filled with plots against the Lord and His anointed. But then now they will become what? A people that He actually inherits right? The people who, want, the people who were once his enemies are now his humble citizens. And so, beloved, don't you see this profound reversal here? Because who has the power to turn hearts? 
Who has the power to turn hearts that are by nature rebellious, that are by nature ungodly? It's the one who has ultimate authority and power over all creatures. And so it must be the king. It must be the Lord's anointed because we see his power, power that's symbolized by his rod, his rod of iron in verse 9. We read that he shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And I think a better translation of the rod there could be the shepherd's staff. The, the iron staff of the shepherd king who has the power to metaphorically break those who are rebellious. He, he shakes the world to humble his sheep that are lost and to seek mercy in him. Or the opposite effect is that the staff actually hardens the hearts. The hardens the hearts which they themselves, which they set for themselves. And not only does the king inherit a nation whose hearts will be turned, but he inherits a kingdom which is really far beyond Mount Zion, which is far beyond Jerusalem, which is where? To the ends of the earth. To the ends of the earth. And so as the people of Israel meditated upon this royal psalm and the eternal throne of David since the day it was written, they anticipated in every generation that a faithful king, a faithful king should rule in true justice and righteousness. But each time a king assumed the Davidic throne, their reign was always short-lived. Because even after the death of King David came his son, King Solomon. But he too fell in sin and what? He died. And just by reading the historical books and the writings of the prophets, we see that one flawed king after another. They were far from the description of the anointed one in Psalm 2. The Israelite kings were sinners like you and I. They were limited. They were mortal beings. And they eventually died. And so who is worthy to be called the anointed one? Who is worthy to be called God's son? Well, beloved, in the fullness of time, only one person fits the perfect description of Psalm 2. It's none other than our Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? Our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the God-man who became flesh. The anointed king from the line of David, from the tribe of Judah. In Hebrew, the anointed one literally means the Messiah in verse 2. And when translated in Greek, means Christ. And so Jesus truly carries the title Christ, meaning the anointed one. In Mark chapter 1, verse 11, at Jesus' baptism, we read there, A voice came from heaven, which we know to be the Father, declared, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And even in Luke's version of his baptism, the Holy Spirit de de descended upon him like a dove, and anointing him, and empowering him for ministry. And then at his transfiguration, the Lord declares, This is my Son. My chosen one, listen to him. Listen to him. And then finally, the writer of Hebrews makes explicit in chapter 1, verse 2, how Jesus is the son, the anointed one in Psalm 2. He writes, but in these last days, he has spoken, he has spoken to us by his son, 
whom he appointed the heir of all things. He's the heir of all things. And yet Jesus, when he first came, Jesus didn't come as a king with the rod of iron to overthrow his enemies and the wicked kings on earth, right? But, but he came as what? The suffering servant. He came to fulfill all righteousness by his perfect obedience and became our sin bearer on the cross so that when he takes away the penalty of sin and the power of sin, he inherits every redeemed sinner. From where? From every tribe, from every tongue and nation to rule over them as the righteous king to where? To the ends of the earth. By what? By his word and spirit. By his word and spirit. And so how are we to respond to the Lord and his anointing that we find in Jesus? What are, what are we called to do as we navigate the Christian life until the king's return to judge the living and the dead? Well, not only are we to think about the rejection against the king, the reign of the king, but finally we're to consider the response to the king, the response to the king. And we see that in verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son. Notice after David spends a great deal on declaring the king's unthrowment and the great benefits of being under his care, he circles back. He circles back to warn the kings and the rules of the earth in verses 1 to 3. But this time, they must recognize that they must be held accountable to God and that the rulers of the earth was, must what? They must serve wisely. They must serve well. Because in verse 11, we see that warning to them. They must serve the Lord, right, whom they rebelled against, to serve Him with fear. To serve Him with fear. And it's not the kind of fear that drives them away from God, but to fear Him as they're called to draw near to Him, to draw near to Him with reverence and with awe. And why? Because the Lord, who is ultimately the King, grants even earthly rulers. He grants them temporary positions of power, whether they realize it or not, in which in the end, they will all be held accountable to God. They will know. Just like everyone else, they will know that all of us stand in His final judgment. And so how do we appeal to our rulers to be wise? How do we appeal to their conscience to cultivate a sense of reverent fear? Well, it's through the law of God, isn't it? Proverbs 1 tells us the beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord. And so they must fear God. They must fear God. They, to receive instruction from God is to be what? To be wise. In Psalm 1, blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord and on his law meditates day and night. And you know, beloved, what better person can we trust for his word to be embedded, to be embedded into the hearts of all kings, all rulers, all peoples, and even our own hearts? But through Jesus Christ, he is the supreme, wise king who is also truly the blessed man. 
It's also before Him that the kings and rulers on earth must rejoice with trembling in verse 12. In verse 12, to kiss the Son, to which a kiss to the king in Jewish culture is a gesture of honor and loyalty. And yet the warning still rings true not only for all rulers today, but for all of us, for all of us in verse 12, that we must fear Him, that we must seek His grace and mercy in our trouble. It says there, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. And so in closing, beloved, Jesus came the first time as the suffering servant But when the second time comes, he comes as the triumphant king for the final judgment. The final judgment against those who persist in rebellion while vindicating those whose hope is in Jesus Christ, the king. And yet, since today, beloved, today is the day of salvation. And since his mercies are new every morning, may we turn, may we turn our hearts to him to find our ultimate comfort in life and in death. In the king's comforting words to all of us, when he declares in verse 12, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Right? Blessed are all who take refuge in Christ. And the promise for all those who share in his anointing, just like our catechism answer uh, number 32 revealed to us that after this life, you will reign with Christ over all creation. For what? For eternity. And what is eternity? That's forever and ever. That's forever and ever. And so, beloved, closing, may that always be your hope in life and in death, that under the King's reign and care, you may find refuge in Him. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God, graciously grant that your word, which we have heard, may be inscribed inwardly in our hearts, As we receive your word meekly with pure affection, may our hearts be filled with love and reverence for you. Turn our hearts to seek our only hope in the blessed man and the anointed King Jesus Christ, so that in him we may bear the fruit of the Spirit and to live in holiness, diligently following your commandments. May it please you to use us to lead those who are lost, those who are not under the King's reign, wandering and confused into the way of truth. So, Father, all this we pray for the honor and praise of your name, through Jesus Christ our Lord, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.